Hello, everybody. I'm John Benko, the founder and director of the Four Persons Incorporated, a licensed 501c3 recognized by the federal government. Every year as we enter into the holidays, we hear the same argument that Jesus was not born on December 25th. Well, he was, and we're about to prove it. This presentation is in three parts in order to preserve the highest quality of video production. Thank you. We think you'll enjoy what we've produced here. Why is this project so important? It establishes the year, the day, and even the hour when eternity stepped into time. The moment when a creature gave birth to her own creator. The Bible states that all generations should call her blessed and how can it be otherwise? You cannot appreciate the magnitude of Christmas and, thus, the entire Christian faith if you are not willing to see in the blessed Virgin Mary her rightful designation as the Mother of God. Revelation 12 then a great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant, and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon, with seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven, and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who was to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. Luis Agando of the Four Persons has a few words on this. Mary is clearly the mother of God because she's the mother of Christ, the second person of the Trinity, who is God. There is no way to avoid acknowledging that Mary is the mother of God if you accept that Jesus is God. She gave birth to him. That can't be argued. But if you do want to get technical on where the phrase mother of God is used, we can turn to Luke one forty three, when Elizabeth calls Mary the mother of the Lord. And the term Lord is used to refer to God the Savior, God the Son. So we have a very clear reference here. But even if it wasn't there, with inference alone, it's clearly shown. Just like how in Scripture the Holy Trinity isn't mentioned directly, but we know it because God the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit are mentioned to be one, even if the word Holy Trinity isn't there. If we turn to Genesis 3.15, as we've talked about many times, it foreshadows Christ the seed and Mary the woman. Well, again, if um, Christ is Mary's seed and Christ is God, well, what other conclusion can be there be made 
if not Mary is the mother of God which is Christ the second person of the Trinity in this regard we turn to Revelation 12 we see Mary being foretold to give birth to a king that will rule all nations and that king is Jesus or again that's showing clearly she is the mother of God Jesus Christ The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Upon those who dwelt in the land of gloom, a light has shone. You have brought them abundant joy and great rejoicing. As they rejoice before you as at the harvest, as men make merry when dividing spoils. For the yoke that burdened them, the pole on their shoulder, and the rod of their taskmaster, you have smashed as on the day of Midian. For every boot that tramped in battle, Every cloak rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for flames. For a child is born to us, a son is given us. Upon his shoulder dominion rests. They name him Wonder Counselor, God Hero, Father Forever, Prince of Peace. His dominion is vast and forever peaceful. From David's throne and over his kingdom which he confirms and sustains by judgment and justice, both now and forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Hail, and blessed be the hour and moment at which the Son of God was born of a most pure virgin, at a stable at midnight in Bethlehem, in the piercing cold. At that hour vouchsafe, I beseech thee, to hear our prayers and grant our desire. That this presentation will inspire, touch hearts and change minds. Through Jesus Christ and His most blessed Mother. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. The Bible prophesies the birth of Jesus with a powerful statement that captured both the dramatic event itself and the larger meaning. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Upon those who walked in the land of gloom a light has shone. There is no end to the dramatic effect, for we hold to be true that the greatest light ever given to man struck in the darkest part of the night 
of the darkest part of the year at the darkest part of human history. Imagine an event so significant in history that even the measurement of time places it at the center. The years, the days, even the hours. That singular historical event is the birth of Jesus Christ. Each year, as the branches go bare and the wind cuts cold, the darkness begins to slowly be dispelled with multicolored lights, recreating that solemn scene. Then, just as it did on that holy silent night, the voice of song rises above the barren land. Many of these songs have been sung reverently for centuries, but our modern world is becoming deaf to the claims they make. Claims about the actual historical event that is the very foundation of the Christian faith. These songs claim that Jesus Christ, the second person of the divinity, was born in Bethlehem to a virgin. Oh, town of Bethlehem, how still we see thee lie, above thy deep and dreamless sleep, the silent stars go by, yet in thy dark street shineth the everlasting light. The hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. That he was born at midnight. It came upon the midnight clear, that glorious song of old. From angels bending near the earth to touch their hearts of gold. Peace that he was born on December 25th. God rest ye merry gentlemen, let nothing you dismay. Remember Christ the Savior was born on Christmas Day. To save us all from Satan's power, we were gone astray. Oh, tidings of comfort and joy, comfort and joy. Oh, tidings of comfort and joy. Long time ago in Bethlehem, so the Holy Bible says, Mary's boy child Jesus, 
Step 1 to determining the birth date of Jesus Christ. Determine the date of his death. In the ninth chapter of the book of Daniel, he records one of the most amazingly precise prophecies in all of scripture, as given to him directly by the angel Gabriel. The prophecy deals with the fulfillment of the Jewish religion, the end of the line of prophets, the temple sacrifice, and the temple itself. It also deals specifically with the coming of and the death of the Christ. It is only this last part that we will focus on here. According to the prophecy, 69 weeks of Jewish years are determined from the signing of the decree to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem to the coming of the Christ, his death occurring shortly after. A week of years means seven years. Seven years times 69 equals 483 Jewish years. A Jewish year was 360 days. 483 times 360 equals 173,880 days. The decree in question was issued by King Artaxerxes of Persia on 1 Nisan in the Jewish year 3317. By our calendar, March 5, 444 BC. Our calendar has 97 leap days per 400 years, so our calendar year is actually 365.2425 days long. Converting the calendars with the starting point of exactly March 5, 444 BC and moving forward exactly 173,880 days, we have to remember that there is no year zero between 1 AD and 1 BC. We arrive at exactly March 29, 33 AD for the coming of the Christ. His death occurs shortly after. This prophecy is astounding because if Friday, April 3rd, 33 AD is the day of the crucifixion, and we believe it was, March 29th is the day of the coming of the Christ in triumph, Palm Sunday. This prophecy would seem to support April 3rd, 33 AD as the date of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. It fits within the overall framework of evidence that points to this date as the only date that fits all the known requirements. Let's go over them one by one. First requirement. In the Gospel of Luke, we see Jesus' ministry as beginning in the 15th year of Tiberius Caesar. This would be either 29 or 30 AD, depending on whether or not Luke was using common ascension dating. But John's Gospel shows Jesus' death the day before Passover, three years later. That means Jesus had to have died in 32 or 33 AD. The Passover moved each year, so the day of the week preceding Passover would change. The Gospels are clear that Jesus died on a Friday. 
This eliminates the 32 AD date, but the 33 AD date still qualifies. Now the second requirement, an eclipse. Because the Bible records that there was an eclipse on the day of the crucifixion. A 2017 article in the Kansas City Star confirms NASA has determined a partial lunar eclipse was visible in Israel on April 3rd, 33 AD. And this is confirmed in Roman historical accounts of the same day. Pagan historians Thallus and Pelagian both confirmed this. The third requirement, an earthquake, because the Bible confirms that there was an earthquake on the day of Jesus' crucifixion. The historian Pelagian also confirms an earthquake in Israel on April 3rd, 33 AD, and this is confirmed by the International Geology Review and others. Now I must ask you, what are the odds of predicting an event almost 500 years in advance when that event has to, one, occur on a Friday, two, occur in the 18th year of a particular political leader in a particular geographical area. Three, that said area would experience a confirmed eclipse coinciding with the event. Four, that said area would experience a confirmed earthquake coinciding with the event. The odds against this happening by chance and fulfilling all these requirements would be a number too large to even contemplate. But April 3rd, 33 AD, indeed, fits all these criteria. Let's face it, Jesus died on April 3rd, 33 AD. That is our first puzzle piece. Step 2 to determining the birth date of Jesus Christ. Confirm the year his ministry began. Since the Passover of the Jews was near, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. He found in the temple area those who sold oxen, sheep, and doves, as well as the money changers seated there. He made a whip out of cords and drove them all out of the temple area, with the sheep and oxen, and spilled the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And to those who sold doves, he said, Take these out of here, and stop making my father's house a marketplace. His disciples recalled the words of Scripture, Zeal for your house will consume me. At this the Jews answered and said to him, What sign can you show us for doing this? Jesus answered and said to them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews said, This temple has been under construction for forty-six years, and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. Before we get into the statement by the Pharisees that the temple in Jerusalem had been in, under construction for 46 years, 
and determine what time frame that points to. Let's take a brief diversion and talk about the temple in Jerusalem. Now when Jesus says, if you tear this temple down, I will raise it in three days, he was talking about the temple of his body. But the Pharisees didn't understand that. They thought he was talking about the physical temple. To explain how unthinkable it would be that the temple in Jerusalem would ever be torn down, let me give you some statistics and facts about the temple. The majority of the stones used in the construction of the temple in Jerusalem weighed in excess of 56,000 pounds each. Some of the stones that weighed as much as 160,000 pounds were elevated to a height of 100 feet in the construction of the temple. The heaviest stones were placed at the base of the temple and the heaviest stone is estimated to have been in excess of 1 million pounds. Quite a feat to move those stones into place and construct the temple in Jerusalem and it's understandable how the Jews would believe that the temple would never fall. The temple in Jerusalem was a massive structure. Ross Earl Hoffman traveled to the Holy Land as a guest of Catholic apologist Steve Ray and he called in live from Jerusalem to the show and had these comments to make about how the temple in Jerusalem was central to all of the whole city. This is such a wonderful thing to have Steve here so let's keep this moving. I want you to picture this. This whole scene we're, we're picturing now picture the temple right in the middle of this. I mean, if you can picture the temple, I mean, you have to see this to believe it. I mean, we come into the Wailing Wall, and good Lord, I mean, I've never been around our, our Jewish brothers and stuff, but it, that was insane too. I, I mean, here we have the temple right in the middle of all of this, and, and around it are each of these spots where Jesus interacted, and, and it's just, it's almost impossible to put it into words. The construction of the temple itself, however, was something different. 1,000 carts of stone had to be accumulated and 1,000 priests had to be trained to be stone cutters. This would have taken a considerable amount of time. But just how long remains unclear. At what time did the actual building of the temple commence? Well, the Jewish website jewishmag.com actually gives us a hint in telling us that the temple stood for a total of 80 years, Herod's temple, being completed in 64 AD. Well, 64 AD minus 80 years takes us to 16 BC for the beginning of the construction of the temple in Jerusalem. After moving forward the 46 years prescribed by the Pharisees, we arrive again at 30 AD.
our first deposition is from Luke, a first-century Gentile doctor. DNA testing has proven him to be of Syrian descent and the weight of the historical record shows that he grew up in a Greek family in the city of Antioch. His reputation was above reproach and it is clear that he had nothing to gain in this world and everything to fear by testifying to Jesus. We are not addressing the issues of inspiration and supernatural faith at this time. We will examine the portion of Luke's testimony that we are about to provide strictly for its historical accuracy. We enter into the record this documented testimonial to his reliability in this area. Based on his accurate description of towns, cities, and islands, as well as correctly naming various official titles, archaeologist William Mitchell Ramsey wrote that Luke is a historian of the first rank. Not merely are his statements of fact trustworthy, he should be placed along with the very greatest of historians. Professor of Classics at Auckland University, Edward Musgrave Blakelock, wrote, For accuracy of detail, and for evocation of atmosphere, Luke stands, in fact, with Thucydides. The Acts of the Apostles is not shoddy product of pious imagining, but a trustworthy record. It was the spade work of archaeology which first revealed the truth. New Testament scholar Colin Hemer has made a number of advancements in understanding the historical nature and accuracy of Luke's writings. Our deposition is from his gospel and is intended to help us determine the year of Christ's birth by establishing his age at a particular historical point and working back from there. We give two citations from the third chapter of this work. Citation 1 is from verses 1 and 2. In the fifteenth year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being Tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip Tetrarch of the region of Iturea, and Trachonitis, and Licinius, Tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. Citation 2 is from verse 23 of the same. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about thirty years of age, being the son, as was supposed of Joseph, the son of Heli. Tiberius Caesar co-reigned with Augustus for two years. Then in August of 14 AD, Augustus died. On September 15 of 14 AD, Tiberius officially became Caesar. But that's not how it would have been counted. The historical writers did not want to count partial years because they wished, whenever possible, to attribute a year to a particular leader who was the predominant ruler of that year. Now, this did not always work. For example, in 68 AD, there were four Roman emperors. Nevertheless, this method of counting, known as common ascension dating, was the preferred method, and it is what Luke is using here. So the first year of Tiberius' reign would have been counted starting on 1 Nisan of 15 AD that is, March to April range by our calendar. This means that Luke is saying that Jesus is about 30 in the spring of 30 AD. Now, all of the reigns of all the other figures that Luke cites fit this chronology. The word about is translated from the Greek Hosei, Strong's 5616, and it conveys a pretty close estimate 
Thus, it would be reasonable to assert that Jesus is no younger than 29 years and 6 months, and no older than 30 years and 6 months in the spring of 30 AD. Now, since there is no year 0 between 1 BC and 1 AD, the calculation here puts his birth no earlier than November of 2 BC and no later than October of 1 BC. This 11-month window will be our starting point. We sure hope you are enjoying the case for Christmas. Please proceed now to part two. Hello and welcome back to the four persons and part two of the case for Christmas. We hope you enjoy it. Before we continue further in zoning in on the precise time frame, it is necessary to deal with another chronological difficulty that is often raised. In the first two verses of the second chapter of Luke's Gospel, we hear that the genesis of Joseph and Mary's journey to Bethlehem was a census that was called for by Caesar Augustus and the first enrollment of that census which occurred while Quirinius was governor of Syria. Detractors will point out that the census, to tally allegiance to Caesar, was actually called for in 3 BC but that Quirinius did not become governor of Syria until 6 AD. This nine-year gap seemed to make this detail unworkable. It's not. Augustus was to be honored in Rome with the title Pater Patri and that was to take place on February 5, 2 BC. Varus was most likely governor at that time and would have traveled to Rome. Luke does not use the noun governor to describe Quirinius, but rather the participle governing. This is correct. Quirinius would have been acting in the role of governor until Varus returned. True. February 2nd is nearly 11 months to Christmas, but returning from Rome was no picnic for Varus. Historian Carl George Wiesler confirms that Quirinius was in fact governing Syria until 1 BC and the travel difficulties of Varus was the most likely reason. Our own William Hemsworth explains. The journey by boat during ancient times in the Mediterranean was a adventure to say the least. Um, it really wasn't safe. There were no passenger ships. I mean, it was the fastest form of travel. Um, but it wasn't done during the months of April and October because of the danger. Because of that danger, no one sailed in the winter unless business was urgent. So they only traveled during April and October. Uh, there were no fixed sailing times. Uh, the captain had to wait for the right wind, the weather, etc. Um... There were no ships dedicated to carrying passengers. Passengers had to travel on cargo ships when space was available, and it cost two days' wages. And there were pirates in the water. Uh, shipwrecks were a common thing, and we read about that in 2 Corinthians 11.25 and Acts 27.44. Um, there were various trade routes, but yeah, it was a, traveling by boat during the winter was a huge ordeal. And when you consider the Roman roads as well, uh, traveling on Roman roads was perilous. It was exhausting. It was an exhausting thing. I mean, the Roman roads had a network of 53,000 miles, and they were primarily for military purposes. Um, they were plentiful. Um, they went city to city, but... It was exhausting. I mean, you walked or you maybe went on horseback 
So if you're walking by foot, um, I mean, the average person was able to go four miles per hour, which is a pretty brisk pace, really. Um, among Jews, a day's journey was 20 to 30 miles. If you went by horseback, you're able to go a little faster. You're able to go possibly 500 miles in three days, possibly, depending on what was around on the horse. But it was an exhausting journey. It was one that um, you just didn't wake up in the morning and say, hey, I'm going to do this travel or I'm going to go on this ship today. No, this had to be planned, planned in advance. You had to account for weather because it was dangerous, especially when going by ship. The roads, I mean, the Romans had the Pax Romana, so there was safe travels monitored by the Romans. And when traveling by ship, the Romans did keep pirates at bay, but shipwrecks were common. We take that for granted nowadays. Part 3 to determining the date of the birth of Jesus Christ. Determining the death of Herod the Great. After demonstrating that Jesus had to have been born between November of 2 BC and October of 1 BC, we demonstrated that the account given by Luke was correct in asserting that Quirinius was governing Syria at that time. The next, and crucial pieces, of this story will be put in place by examining the evidence presented from two principal sources, the writings of Josephus Flavius, the Jewish historian, and the testimony of Matthew's Gospel. A few words on these two sources from our own members Luke Haskell and Richard Pettis. Matthew is giving hope to the Jewish nation who were looking for a savior who their prophets said would come. So in prophecy, the Jews understood that the throne of David would always have an earthly leader and the kingdom of David would never be destroyed. So they looked for a Messiah. Uh, pe people often use the, you know, the word Jesus Christ almost as if it's uh, God's first and last name. But uh, right. we understand that Christ means anointed in, in the Greek. And in the Hebrew, the word Messiah actually uh, means king. So they were looking for you know, their anointed king. And so the Jews were looking to, to the future to find a king who fulfills the prophecies and, and who will even reestablish the kingdom of David prophecy. And we read from Amos, In that day I will uh, raise up the tabernacle of David that has fallen, and I will close up the breaches of the walls thereof, and repair what was fallen, and I will rebuild it as in the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom, all nations, because my name is invoked upon them, saith the Lord. So, uh, this, this is what actually what James quoted at the Council of Jerusalem after Peter, you know, declared uh, uh, that the Gentiles, you know, uh, uh, did not need to follow the Mosaic law. So uh, James saw uh, in the church at that time this fulfillment, the, the kingdom of uh, David being reestablished in the church. So after the begets, we, we don't see the visitation of Mary here. That's not really the, the, you know, part, of the, part of the theme. Uh, Matthew's coming from a different angle. Uh, here, it, it was Luke who appears to be the closest to Mary, uh, as, uh, as as we just discussed, uh, besides John. But Luke had to have been given the intimate details of the incarnation by Mary, uh, as we discussed. So that's probably why Matthew didn't uh, in, uh, didn't entertain that direction. But we we see that Joseph, who was betrothed to Mary, found out that. She was already pregnant, and uh, in uh, human language, uh, you know, I, I think the word for that is uh-oh. 
Uh, And we read, but while he he thought on these things, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in his sleep, saying, Joseph, son of David, hear not to take unto thee Mary thy wife, for that which is conceived in her is the Holy Ghost, is of the Holy Ghost, and she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Now all this was done, that it might be fulfilled which the Lord spoke by the prophet. This is Matthew's first introduction to these prophecies, saying, Behold, a virgin shall be with child, and bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted God with us, and Joseph rising up from his sleep, as the angel of the Lord had commanded him, and took unto him his wife, and he knew her not, till she brought forth her firstborn son, and he called his name called his name Jesus. The preeminent Jewish Roman historian is Josephus Flavius. He was a Roman Jew, and he wrote about a lot of topics uh, that happened during the first century. He was born around the year thirty-seven and died around the year one hundred. So he was somewhere between 60 and 63 years of age, they think. And he wrote a lot about Herod. He wrote about John the Baptist. He wrote about Jesus. And he gives us a lot of information that we wouldn't otherwise have in the Bible. Um, For instance, he gives us uh, the stories of the Second Jewish-Roman War. Um, He also talks about Herod and how Herod built the Second Temple. And that started around the year 15 B.C., give or take. And it, it took him a while to come up with the materials, so he may have started working on it around 20 B.C., but he didn't have the labor or materials that he needed until about 15 B.C., and that all comes from Josephus. Um, and like I said, he gives us a lot of information that we wouldn't otherwise have in the Bible. Right. And he is the main source. He's he's historians go to. And there was a, a long time where he was actually out of favor with historians, especially Jewish historians, and he reemerged around the nineteenth and twentieth centuries. We introduce the testimony of E.L. Martin from his work The Star That Astonished the World regarding the findings of the historian Josephus Flavius. Mr. Martin's work here is summarized by the late father William Most. We have produced evidence that Jesus was about 30 years old in the spring of 30 AD, so his birth is between November of 2 BC and October of 1 BC. We believe we can dramatically shorten that window by establishing the date of the death of Herod the Great because we know Jesus' birth preceded that event. Quoting Father Most, the date of the birth of Christ hinges on just one thing, the statement of Josephus that Herod died shortly after an eclipse of the moon.
Astronomers supply the dates for such eclipses around those years, none in 7 or 6 BC in 5 BC, March 23rd, 29 days to Passover. Also in 5 BC, September 15th, 7 months to Passover. In 4 BC, March 13th, 29 days to Passover. In 3 and 2 BC, no eclipses. In 1 BC, January 10th, 12 and a half weeks to Passover. Josephus also tells what events happened between the eclipse and the Passover, they would occupy probably about 12 weeks. Martin also shows that the eclipse of September 15th, 5 BC could not fit with known data, especially the fact that Herod was seriously ill in Jericho when the eclipse happened, but Jericho was a furnace of heat at that time, September 15th. Herod would not have stayed there when he could have had the much better climate of Jerusalem. But if the eclipse was in midwinter, January 10th, Herod would find Jericho comfortable. So Herod died in 1 BC, and the birth of Christ cannot be put too much earlier than that. Herod took Jerusalem late in 36 BC. Josephus says Herod's siege of Jerusalem was during a sabbatical year, and 36 was a sabbatical year. Otherwise, it would need to be seven years before or after 36. Also, all sabbatical years ended on Yom Kippur. Josephus said Herod's capture of Jerusalem coincided with Yom Kippur. He and the Jews would remember it well, for it was an outrage to press a siege on Yom Kippur. Josephus said it was 27 years to the day that Pompey committed his abominations, which he did in 63 BC. This gives again 36 BC for Herod's capture of Jerusalem. If we use the common extension method of counting years of rule, the date to start his 34 years is the first of Nisan in 35 BC. So Herod's 34th year of rule would start with the first of Nisan in 2 BC and end with first of Nisan in 1 BC. Now 34 years after 35 BC would give 1 BC for the death and end of the reign of Herod, his death, soon after the eclipse of January 10th, 1 BC. Close quote. We have thus established the birth of Jesus Christ had to have occurred between the first week of November, 2 BC, and the first week of January, 1 BC. Part 4 to determining the date of the birth of Jesus Christ. When did the angel Gabriel appear to Zechariah in the temple? When trying to establish that which is historically in question, we must begin with what we know to be historically established fact. For this purpose, we start our journey on the 9th of Av, 70 AD. The Jewish fast date of Tisha B'Av commemorates the destruction of the temples in Jerusalem, both the first and second temples. Both were destroyed on the 9th of Av, the first in 587 BC and the second in 70 AD. It was after the destruction of the first temple and building of the second that the first of the 24 priestly courses was set to commence on Tisha B'Av. The siege on the second temple was the bloodiest in human history. The Jewish historian Josephus lamented that the Roman soldiers actually had to navigate mounds of dead bodies to continue their extermination. In the end, more than one million were killed, men, women, children, priests, all were exterminated, just as the Bible had foretold. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then recognize that her desolation is near. 
Then those who were in Judea must flee to the mountains, and those who were in the midst of the city must leave, and those who were in the country must not enter the city, because these are days of vengeance, so that all things which are written will be fulfilled. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who killed the prophets and stoned those sent to you, how many times I yearned to gather your children together, as a hen gathers her young under her wings, but you were unwilling. Behold, your house will be abandoned, desolate. After this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth became illumined by his splendor. He cried out in a mighty voice, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a haunt for demons. She is a cage for every unclean spirit, a cage for every unclean bird a cage for every unclean and disgusting beast. For all the nations have drunk the wine of her licentious passion. The kings of the earth had intercourse with her, and the merchants of the earth grew rich from her drive for luxury. Then I heard another voice from heaven say, Depart from her, my people, so as not to take part in her sins, and receive a share in her place. For her sins are piled up to the sky, and God remembers her crimes. Pay her back as she has paid others. Pay her back double for her deeds. Into her cup pour double what she poured. To the measure of her boasting and wantonness, repay her in torment and grief. For she said to herself, I sit enthroned as queen. I am no widow, and I will never know grief. Therefore her plagues will come in one day, pestilence, grief, and famine. She will be consumed by fire, for mighty is the Lord God who judges her. There were 24 groups of priests, called courses, who served in the temple in Jerusalem. The first was called Jehoiarib. According to the Old Testament Chronicles, that rotation began on the first of Nisan. At some point, the start of the rotation was changed to the ninth day of the fifth month, the ninth of Av. We cannot say precisely when it was changed, but we know for a fact that it was changed. Father Joseph Heinrich Friedlieb, a historian who died in the year 1900, has established this definitively. This fact is critical to determining when Zechariah was in the temple, and received the visit from the angel Gabriel. Though we cannot know for certain when the date was changed, we can understand why. The ninth of Av is not a day lacking in significance to the Jewish people. From Wikipedia, quote, according to the Mishnah, Five specific events occurred on the 9th of Av that warrant fasting. The 12 spies sent by Moses to observe the land of Canaan returned from their mission. Only two of the spies, Joshua and Caleb, brought a positive report, while the others spoke disparagingly about the land. The majority report caused the children of Israel to cry, panic and despair of ever entering the promised land. For this, they were punished by God that their generation would not enter the land. The Midrash quotes God as saying about this event, You cried before me pointlessly, I will fix for you crying for the generations, alluding to the future misfortunes which occurred on the same date. The first temple built by King Solomon was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar in 586 BCE, and the population of the kingdom of Judah was sent into the Babylonian exile. According to the Bible, the first temple's destruction began on the 7th of Av and continued until the 10th. According to the Talmud, the actual destruction of the temple began on the 9th of Av, and it continued to burn throughout the 10th. The second temple built by Ezra and Nehemiah was destroyed by the Romans in 70 CE, 
scattering the people of Judea and commencing the Jewish exile from the Holy Land. The Romans subsequently crushed Bar Kokhba's revolt and destroyed the city of Batar, killing over 500,000 Jewish civilians on August 4, 135 CE. Following the Bar Kokhba revolt, Roman commander Quintus Tanius Rufus plowed the site of the temple in Jerusalem and the surrounding area in 135 CE. Other calamities over time, Tisha B'Av has come to be a Jewish day of mourning, not only for these events, but also for later tragedies which occurred on or near the 9th of Av. References to some of these events appear in liturgy composed for Tisha B'Av. The First Crusade officially commenced on August 15, 1096, killing 10,000 Jews in its first month and destroying Jewish communities in France and the Rhineland. The Jews were expelled from England on July 18, 1290. The Jews were expelled from France on July 22, 1306. The Jews were expelled from Spain on July 31, 1492. Germany entered World War I on August 1, 1914, which caused massive upheaval in European Jewry and whose aftermath led to World War II and the Holocaust. On August 2, 1941, SS Commander Heinrich Himmler formally received approval from the Nazi Party for the Final Solution, which marked the beginning of the Holocaust during which almost one-third of the world's Jewish population was murdered. On July 23, 1942, the mass deportation of Jews from the Warsaw Ghetto to Treblinka began. The AMIA bombing on the Jewish Community Center in Buenos Aires killed 85 and injured 300 on July 18, 1994. The 2005 Israeli disengagement from Gaza. While the Holocaust spanned a number of years, most religious communities used Tisha B'Av to mourn its 6 million Jewish victims, in addition to or instead of the secular Holocaust memorial days such as Yom HaShoah. On Tisha B'Av, communities which otherwise do not modify the traditional prayer liturgy have added the recitation of special kinnot related to the Holocaust. Close quote. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the priestly division of Abijah. His wife was from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. Both were righteous in the eyes of God, observing all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord blamelessly. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Once, when he was serving as priest in his division's turn before God, According to the practice of the priestly service, he was chosen by lot to enter the sanctuary of the Lord to burn incense. Then, when the whole assembly of the people was praying outside at the hour of the incense offering, the angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right of the altar of incense. Zechariah was troubled by what he saw, and fear came upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, because your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall name him John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. And in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God into a city of Galilee, called Nazareth, to a virgin espoused to a man whose name was Joseph, of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And the angel being come in, said unto her, Hail, full of grace, the Lord is with thee, blessed art thou among women. Who having heard, 
was troubled at his saying, and thought with herself what manner of salutation this should be. And the angel said to her, Fear not, Mary, for thou hast found grace with God. Behold thou shalt conceive in thy womb, and shalt bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus. He shall be great, and shall be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of David his father, and he shall reign in the house of Jacob for ever. And of his kingdom there shall be no end. So let's review. We've established so far the birth of Christ as having occurred between the first week of November 2 BC and the first week of January 1 BC. And we know nine months before then Mary conceived Jesus in her womb. And six months before that the angel appears to Zechariah in a temple. So what time does that take us back to for the appearance of the angel to Zechariah in the temple. To determine, we simply subtract 15 months. This means that if Jesus was born between November of 2 BC and January of 1 BC, then the angel had to have appeared to Zechariah in the temple between August and October of 3 BC. It's that simple. Now can we determine exactly when this occurred in that time frame? Yes, we can. How? Because we know the temple rotation started on the 9th of Av. And we know that Zechariah was of the 8th course, Abijah. That means that Zechariah's course was appearing in the temple around the last week of September. September of 3 BC. But can we zone in on the particular day? Actually, we can. Because, listen again to the testimony you heard just a minute ago. Once, when he was serving as priest in his division's turn before God, according to the practice of the priestly service, he was chosen by lot to enter the sanctuary of the Lord to burn incense. Then, when the whole assembly of the people was praying outside at the hour of the incense offering, the angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right of the altar of incense. Our own Ken Litchfield explains why, for the early church, this was a clincher. So, Ken, we've already talked about the ninth of Av and its significance in establishing when it was that Zechariah was in the temple. Okay? So, now we've, we've, we've got a framework of the time of year that Zechariah was in the temple, but kind of zoning in on the specific day. And Luke chapter 1 is very helpful in that. So I want to read the passage from you. This is Luke chapter 1, beginning with verse 8. And it came to pass when he executed the priestly function in the order of his course before God, according to the custom of the priestly office, it was his lot to offer incense going into the temple of the Lord. And all the multitudes of the people were praying 
without at the hour of incense. Now, Ken, this is when the angel appears to him. Now, knowing that this was late September and knowing that the whole multitude of the people were outside and knowing that he entered the sanctuary to offer incense, this establishes for us clearly what day this occurred on. Why don't you explain, please? Zechariah was the, the lot fell to him that he was the incense bearer in that shift of temple priests. And part of his duty was to go into the holy place and replenish the incense as part of the preparation for the high priest entering the Holy of Holies. And that only occurred on the day of Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. So that's how we know when Zechariah was in the temple and God spoke to him about his wife conceiving. And if we know that Zechariah was in the temple on Yom Kippur, then all we need to determine is what day Yom Kippur fell on in 3 BC, right? Right, yep. Well, do you know what day that was? No, I don't. Well, it happened to be the same as in 2023, our current year. Yom Kippur fell on September 25th. The sixth month would have ended on about March 25th, when the angel Gabriel appears to Mary and announces that she will bear a son. Adding nine months for Mary's pregnancy, we arrive, of course, at about December 25th. And she gave birth to her firstborn son. She wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Now there were shepherds in that region living in the fields and keeping the night watch over their flock. The angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were struck with great fear. The angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I proclaim to you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For today in the city of David, a Savior has been born for you, who is Messiah and Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find an infant wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was a multitude of the heavenly host with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace to those on whom his favor rests. When the angels went away from them to heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go then to Bethlehem to see this thing that has taken place, which the Lord has made known to us. So they went in haste and found Mary and Joseph and the infant lying in the manger. When they saw this, they made known the message that had been told them about this child. All who heard it were amazed by what had been told them by the shepherds.
Welcome back to The Case for Christmas, brought to you by the Four Persons Network. Continuing now with part three. Thank you. It could be argued that just because we have established that Zechariah was in the temple on exactly September 25th, 3 BC, does not prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that Jesus was born exactly 15 months later on exactly December 25th, 2 BC. It only proves that it was very close to that date. Before we provide the clinching evidence that proves that Jesus was born on exactly that date, I want to get through a couple of things leading up to that. The first one is one of the objections that's commonly raised every year, saying that Jesus could not have been born in December because it says the shepherds were grazing their flocks in the field, and that couldn't be in December because it was too cold. Chantel Raines, member of the Four Persons, explains why that objection is absurd. Typical weather in Bethlehem. The average temperature in Bethlehem in December for a typical day ranges from a high of 67 degrees Fahrenheit or 19 degrees Celsius to a low of 48 degrees Fahrenheit or 9 degrees Celsius. Some would describe it as mildly cool with a gentle breeze. In December, there's a 10% chance of rain on an average day. And on the average day it rains or snows, we get 0.32 inches or 8 millimeters of precipitation. In more common terms of how much that is, some would describe it as slight rain. The average amount of time that the sky is clear or sunny, that is partly cloudy or less, in Bethlehem during December is 16.6 hours or 69% of the day. The average day in Bethlehem during December has 10.1 hours of daylight with sunrise at 6.30 a.m. and sunset at 4.37 p.m. The day with the longest amount of daylight is June 20th with 14.2 hours while December 18th has the shortest amount of daylight with only 10.1 hours. In December, Bethlehem is somewhat humid with an average amount of 58% relative humidity, which could be described as comfortable. Historically, the wind in Bethlehem during December blows at an average speed of 11.2 miles per hour, or 18.1 kilometers per hour. Weather data for Bethlehem was collected from version 2 of the modern era retrospective analysis for research and applications, or MERRA, which is a project from NASA that used a climate model combined with historical data from weather stations around the world to estimate what the conditions were like for every point on Earth. The historical data on this account is based on the average data taken from the years 2010 to 2020. Here we know that Christmas will be green and bright The sun to shine by day and all the stars at night A very, very, merry, merry Christmas to you 
Four Persons member Terry Dell talks about the Eucharistic significance of the fact that Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Bethlehem, in, in, in Hebrew, the city's name is pronounced Bethlehem. Beth means house, and Lechem means bread, or, or sometimes milk, uh, together being house of bread. Jesus said at one point, I am the bread of life. Uh, and again, he said, I am the manna that comes down from heaven, John 6, 51. If we go back to the book of Exodus in uh, chapter 12, the angel of death was about to visit Egypt and kill every firstborn son of every household. The means by which the house of Israel would be passed over was by smearing the blood of an unblemished lamb upon the doorposts and lintel of every household. The unblemished lamb would have no broken bones. And let's jump forward a little bit because it was common practice during a Roman crucifixion to break the legs of the person being put to death in order to expedite asphyxiation. In John 19.33 we read, but coming to Jesus, when they saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. An unblemished lamb with no broken bones. In Luke 2.7, we read, When the child Jesus was born, his mother, Mary, laid him in a manger. We, we all see the beautiful manger scene, but the word manger, however, comes from the Latin word medicare, which means to eat. A, a manger is a wooden or stone feeding trough or food box that holds hay for larger farm animals. I'm going to go back in time a little bit, back to Exodus 16.4 we read, the Lord said to Moses, I will rain down bread from heaven for you. The people are to go out each day and gather enough for that day. In John chapter 6, verses 48 through 51, we read, I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, yet they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which anyone may eat and not die. An argument used by some to support the idea that Jesus was born in September is that he was born during the Feast of Tabernacle because the Bible says that he tabernacled among us or made his dwelling among us. And though it is true that that is an accurate interpretation, a far greater emphasis to Jesus' coming is on the subject of light. The people that walked in darkness have seen a great light. They that dwell in the land of the shadow of death, upon them hath the light shined. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shineth in darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. In the 10th chapter 
of John's Gospel, we read that he was in Jerusalem celebrating the Feast of the Dedication of the Temple and that it was in wintertime. Well, this feast is what has become known as Hanukkah, the Festival of Lights, an eight-day commemoration of the miracle when one day's supply of oil lasted in the temple lamps for eight days during the Maccabean Revolt. This is recorded in Catholic Bibles, but not in Protestant Bibles. Now, the emphasis on light, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light, and the emphasis that John puts on light should draw this in focus, along with the fact that Hanukkah always falls in December. And usually, one of the eight days of Hanukkah will fall on Christmas Day. This has caused many people, myself included, to believe that Hanukkah is in fact a foreshadowing of Christmas. With the eight days of Hanukkah being the eight days between Christmas Day and the day of the circumcision and the naming of Jesus on January 1st. Here are two interviews I had on the subject, one with the full persons member, Cherry Maestro Mallorca, and the other was an interview I had years ago with Jojo Hawkins on this subject. What is Hanukkah and what is the relevance of the Jewish celebration today? Hanukkah is a Jewish holiday that typically falls in December. It's an eight-day festival that commemorates the rededication of the Second Temple in Jerusalem during the second century before Christ's era. The story is rooted in a historical event where a small group of Jewish rebels known as the Maccabees defeated the oppressive Seleucid Empire and reclaimed the Temple. The most famous aspect of Hanukkah is the lighting of the menorah, a nine-branch candelabrum. Each night, one additional candle is lit, along with the central shamash, a candle that symbolizes the miracle of a one-day supply of oil lasting for eight days at the temple's menorah. Today, Hanukkah holds several layers of relevance for Jewish people. First is the religious significance. It's a religious celebration that reminds Jews of their history and the triumph of light over darkness, freedom over oppression, and faith over despair. Second is cultural and family traditions. Hanukkah is an occasion for Jewish families to come together, light the menorah, exchange gifts, and enjoy special food. And for unity and identity, Hanukkah serves as a symbol of Jewish identity and a time to reflect on the strength and resilience of the Jewish people. Interfaith understanding in today's diverse world, Hanukkah also plays a role in promoting interfaith understanding as it often coincides with other winter holidays. 
Overall, Hanukkah has historical and religious significance, but it has also evolved to be a meaningful and joyous holiday that helps preserve Jewish culture and traditions. John, did you know that, you know with Hanukkah, the feast moves, the Jewish festival of life? Yes. The feast moves. Now, normally, it falls on the 25th of December, which causes a lot of confusion amongst the Jewish children, thinking they're celebrating Christmas. And this year, it starts on the 20th, and on the fifth night, the children are given presents of money. And the fifth night this year will fall on the 25th once again. Wow. Yeah. So, so when you say that it moves, what, what is the reason why it moves? Well, the Jews do a lot of things according to the moon, whereas some of the Christian feasts are set according to the date, whereas some move, like um, our Easter moves, right? When Lent right. starts from year to year, it changes. Okay, so now, wasn't it part of early, early church tradition that Jesus was born during the Festival of Lights during Hanukkah? Because he is the light, and John tells us he came into the world as the light. So, what about the objection that we hear? We hear uh, um, evangelicals uh, say where he it says where he made his dwelling among us. Yes. They say that the literal translation of that is that he uh, that he tabernacled among us. Is that a valid objection? I, I don't think that's a valid objection at all because he fulfills all of the Jewish feast. He definitely does tabernacle among us. That's why we have tabernacles. So they, they've got it part, they've got an understanding, but it's absolutely incorrect. Because if you look at the scriptures, the Jews knew the date. They kept the date. They'd say on the X date of the this month of the this year. You know, dates were important to Jews. And if you knew you were going to be bearing the child that was to be God, would you not know the date he was born? Isn't that bizarre? And of course, no discussion of Christmas and no discussion of light is complete without talking about the miraculous star of Bethlehem. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. The planet Jupiter began rising in the western sky in September of 3 BC. You will recall that this coincides with the time we determined that Zechariah had his encounter with the angel Gabriel. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him, and assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. 
for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. In the evening of June 17, 2 BC, there was a spectacular astronomical event in the western sky. This date is only one week from the traditional date of the birth of John the Baptist. Venus moved eastward seemingly going to collide with Jupiter. They appeared as one star, not two, dominating the twilight of the western sky in the direction of Palestine. This conjunction had not happened for centuries, would not happen again for more centuries. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly, and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. Jupiter was considered the father, Venus the mother. Then not many days later, Venus came within 0.36 degrees of Mercury. On September 11th came the new moon, the Jewish New Year. This happened when Jupiter, the king planet was approaching Regulus, the king star. Further, there were three conjunctions of Jupiter and Regulus within the constellation of Leo, the lion which was considered the head of the zodiac. Now Genesis 49, verse 10, had foretold there would always be a ruler from Judah, whom Jacob called the lion, until the time of the Messiah. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go, and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word, that I too may come and worship him. Leo was dominated by the star Regulus, which astronomers called the King Star. The Magi, being astronomers and astrologers, would surely read these signs. In Hebrew Jupiter was called Sedek, righteous, a term specially pertaining to the Messiah. On September 11th, Jupiter was close in the constellation of Virgo, the Virgin. On September 3rd of 3 BC Jupiter was in conjunction with Regulus, the brightest star in the constellation of Leo, Leo the Lion, which was associated with kings, and the Lion of Judah, as foretold by the dying Jacob in Egypt in Genesis 49, verse 10. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. On December 25th of 2 BC, Jupiter stopped for six days over Bethlehem. Listen to what I say. Pray for peace, people. 
There now remains just one more piece to this mystery. What time was Jesus born and was it at midnight? Luke 2 verse 8 tells us that the shepherds were keeping the night watch. The night watch, as the name suggests, occurs after sunset and before sunrise. In Bethlehem, in late December, that falls between about 6 p.m. and 6 a.m. Obviously, midnight falls right in the middle of that. The text tells us that it was night and the stars, one in particular, were very visible. This tells us that it was well after sunset, perhaps at least 8 p.m. and well before sunrise, probably not after 4. We also know that God has a great flair for the dramatic, so it only makes sense that the greatest light was dispelled the greatest darkness. It also makes sense that if God wanted to hallow this day by his arrival, he would hallow all of it. These arguments, logical as they are, however, do not constitute proof. For proof, we look to two things. The first is the announcement of the angels. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And... An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of a great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. The phrase, this day, comes from the Greek Cimarron, Strong's 4594, and is evocative of a brand new day, with the previous night just having passed. This just fits so perfectly with the notion that Jesus totally possesses Christmas Day and that the light pierces the darkness at just the right point. This is a strong argument, but not the strongest one. As you heard earlier in this special, the Jews knew the dates and times and passed them down. All of these events were passed down orally for decades before the first book of the Bible was ever started. The scripture says that Mary kept all these things and treasured them in her heart. It is impossible that she didn't know when Jesus was born, and it is impossible that she didn't make it known. The fact that we can prove that the Midnight Christmas Mass is at least 230 plus years older than the Bible, performed by Bishop Telesphorus, later Pope Telesphorus, is powerful proof. Even the Old Testament Book of Wisdom, a canonical part of Catholic Bibles, prophesied that God would leap to earth at midnight. Having been right on everything else, it is impossible to believe they are not right here as well.
And there you have it, the case for Christmas. Jesus Christ was born at midnight on December 25th, 2 BC. If you enjoyed this program, I invite you to tell your friends about it and please support us. Go to thepoorpersons.com. We are a 501c3 nonprofit. Go to thepoorpersons.com, click the donate button and make a donation or send your check to the Four Persons Incorporated, P.O. Box 11214, Manassas, Virginia 20113. Thank you. God bless you. And a happy new year. The Four Persons Inc. is a federally registered and licensed 501c3 charity. Any use of any of our content without our permission is prohibited by law. Our purpose is evangelization, education, and social action. Please go to our website at thefourpersons.com or our blog site at thefourpersons.net to make your tax-deductible donation by credit or debit card. You can also send a check to The Four Persons, Inc., P.O. Box 11214, Manassas, Virginia, 20113. To contact us, send us an email at email at thefourpersons.com.
Merry Christmas, everyone. <laughs>